Welcome to the Western Bell podcast series with talks on traditional spiritual teaching and its application in the world today. The intention of the series is to offer something useful for those who are drawn to study themselves and engage practice on the spiritual path. New talks are posted twice each month. The content of the talks is for informational purposes only and not to provide any kind of counseling, medical, or professional advice. This podcast is titled, Do You Want to Be Right or Do You Want to Be in Relationship? The talk was given by Matthew Files on May 14th, 2022, via Zoom. Matthew facilitates groups that support people to look deeper into their process, formulate their own questions, and become responsible for their choices. In this talk, Matthew encourages those in attendance to participate so that a space might be created in which a shift can occur in the way relationship is experienced. A joke that he makes early in the talk becomes the subject of an exchange with the participant and an object lesson for some of the points that are made in the presentation. If there is benefit in this talk for you, please consider sharing the link to it or writing a review on social media or on one of the podcast platforms. Matthew Files. The title, do you want to be right or do you want to be in relationship? I was thinking after I came up with the title, does that mean that to be in relationship, you have to be wrong? As if you're either right or in relationship. So it means if you're in a relationship, you can't be right. You have to be wrong. And I don't think it's quite like that. It's not that black and white, not that linear. I find myself these days for some time now trying to get used to living in a very gray world. Actually, it's a gray world that has more color than a black and white world. So the black and white world is yes, no, and right and wrong, and this and that. It's the world of opposing dichotomies. My opinion, your opinion. And what seems to be occurring to me is that there's a hell of a lot more gray than I thought there ever was. Black and white is kind of passe. By gray, I don't mean drab. Life is anything but drab to me. Maybe it is to some people. I hope not. But what I mean by gray is that there's a lot of fuzzy edges. Things aren't clear in terms of definition. So I feel like I knew a lot more 20 years ago than I know now. I had all the answers. And uh, answers aren't where it's at. Not only are the answers a dead end, but they're dead meat. They don't do it for me anymore. But questions, questions do it for me. So I'd like to invite you this evening to have questions. I think if I'm on my own here, it's not going to be much of a podcast. So I need your help. So in doing a talk like this, I'm not really that interested in being entertainment just something to do on Saturday night because of COVID and you can't go to the movies, you know, or something like that. Nor do I want it to be a download of more useless information, nor necessarily useful information when I come to think of it. Although that's the vehicle of communicating in a talk is information. But personally, I'm interested in creating a space where something shifts for people. And I don't think I can do that on my own. I don't think I can do it just by sitting here and talking. So I'm inviting you to participate. So in that, I have a little question I thought I'd start with. So on a scale of one to 10, how participative do you plan to be tonight? Eight. Eight. Cool. Thank you. What? Five? Five. Okay. That's safe. I'll go 10. All right. You always do. (laughs) (laughs) I go 10 too. (laughs) That means I'm going to leave my mute button off. Okay. (laughs) You have a mute button? (laughs) Okay. So did anybody watch or hear about the Kentucky Derby? I didn't catch the event, but I caught the video of it, which was awesome. Because the horse that won, I don't even remember its name, Rich Strike, 
I mean, I don't follow the Kentucky Derby or, or any sports, but I like watching. The odds on this horse were 81 to 1. And this horse won. This horse won the Kentucky Derby. And I watch it. It's very cool, actually, to see this horse. Most of the race, it's a short race. It's like two and a half minutes. That's it. Done. You know, it's not like the Indy 500. <laughs> it just goes on for hours and hours. But basically, this horse was in the middle of the pack the whole time. And the announcers, the sportscasters were up on the, the front three who were like neck and neck the whole way back and forth. And all of a sudden, it couldn't have been more than the last 100 yards. This horse just comes right through the middle of the pack. You watch him. The jockey, you know, takes him a little bit to the left, a little bit to the right. And he just comes right down the middle. Bingo. And I was reading this thing about the odds makers who figure out the odds, whether, you know, two to one or 81 to one or whatever it is. They missed what this writer was saying. They missed the fact that that horse does that all the time. That horse and jockey, that's how they ride. They've never won a big race. They rarely place first, but they'll go from seventh to third or from fifth to second at the last minute. That's how they ride. And actually the horse, he wasn't even supposed to be in it. There's 20 horses in the Kentucky Derby. He was 21. He didn't make the cut and they're getting ready to pack him back up into the trailer. And one of the horses dropped out. The owner took him out of the race. So they said, okay, you're in. And I just love stories like that. That is just phenomenal. The long odds, taking the long odds, total underdog. I mean, who's going who's gonna to bet more than a couple of bucks? I don't imagine anybody made much money on them because who's going to bet on 81 to 1 odds? Yeah, I'm going to bet $10,000 on 81 to 1 odds. So I just like stories like that because I figure that's what spiritual life is about. You know, the long odds, the long game. You might even call it the long con. There's a short con and a long con if you're a con artist. The short con is immediate. The grifters getting change at the gas station for a $50 bill when you only gave them a five. That's the short con. The long con takes weeks, maybe months, because the payoff's really big. You know, we're talking diamonds and jewelry and somebody's inheritance. And part of the con is to get in a relationship with this person. So you can get close to them and maybe even marry them and then get divorced because you get all the money and that kind of thing. That's the long con. I don't know if spiritual life you could really call a con, but part of me says it is <laughs> that I'm being con somehow. But it's the long game anyway, a game whose final score we might not see this lifetime or next lifetime. That's the long game. But I think most of us tend to think of this lifetime. Got to make it this lifetime. Got to do it this lifetime. Maybe not. Maybe it's all just karmic. Maybe this lifetime, maybe 10 lifetimes. So this is on relationship. You know, I don't know exactly what your plan is, but I got to say that when you said you have a mute button, I want to, you know, let you know that didn't feel good. Okay. We're speaking of relationship. Okay. And I want you to know that my heart is beating and I'm pretending that all is well. Okay. I just want to let you know that it didn't work for me. Thanks. Okay. I was making a joke at your expense. I'm sorry. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Yes. I'll keep my jokes to myself. Those jokes anyway. That was good. Okay, so back to the talk. So relationship. I was thinking about the title. Do you want to be right or do you want to be in relationship? Do you want to be right? I like the slightly confrontive, something that might make one a little on edge. So I, I heard this thing the other day. We were talking about driving and keeping ourselves awake when we're really tired and driving, you know, opening the window, turning on the air conditioning, slapping yourself, chewing gum, whatever. And this person said, turning on music, but particularly music that you don't like. And I thought that was really good because 
when we're in a situation with something that is just slightly irritating, we're paying a little more attention. And if we're just comfortable, everything, everything's working, everything's fine. Because when you're driving a car and everything's comfortable, most likely you're going to fall asleep. And I totally related that thing just to life in general. What's music you don't like? It's a really mild, mild irritation. And the spectrum of things that can be irritating. It's a really mild irritation. So I think that's the kind of thing we need in our lives to keep us paying attention is mild irritations, sometimes big irritations. I personally am not interested in big irritations all the time. They can be big irritations for a short period of time, but I think after a while, they become counterproductive. They just lose their value. I like what you're saying about irritations. One of my pet peeves, which is another way of talking about this, was this use of we. Do we want to be right or in relationship? No, do you want to be right? That's the peeve that I have, is this tendency that I see in myself and in others to use this collective noun, we, it has a whole lot of assumptions, presuming that other people agree with me when I use the word we. That's an example of what it was that I wanted to speak to when you're talking about having annoyances to keep you awake. Mm -hmm. Okay. But the thing is, when you say you or I say I, then I'm having to make a declaration for myself rather than a presumption but I'm speaking for a group of people who all agree with me. So I think that that's a big distinction to make. Okay. Thank you. Well, we, to me, also seems inclusive. It's not like I'm exempt from whatever it is that I'm saying. And if you say you, it implies that you're above that and other people might have this problem or something like that. I mean, there's this idea of using I statements. What's going on for me? Do I want to be right? Or do I want to be in relationship? Yeah, well, so just in terms of the title. <laughs> and then really what the speaker wants, that's the way it should be, because that's how they're feeling about a subject. Thanks. Well, aren't those points of irritants or irritation or annoyance aren't those all really good fodder for growth because if something does disturb you if something bothers you in my personal reality there's something to grow on through meditation on that point yeah like if somebody cuts you off in traffic okay that bothers you what about that bothers you what is it that they affronted your space anything that they're idiots there is that too <laughs> but to me what you said before about this being like a karmic plane to me i look out there and almost everything i encounter i go oh lord here i am this is all the karmic playing field and the things that come up for me if it comes up as an irritant or something like that, that's food for growth. Yes, thank you. And being right, you know I'm right, right? I do. You're right. That's <laughs> a joke. Okay. The other thing I wanted to say before really getting into this was the title. Do you want to be right or do you want to be in relationship? It has that word relationship in it. I was really hoping that nobody came here looking for remedies for their relationship. Like that I was going to be handing out remedies or ways to make your relationship better or something like that. Because honestly, I have no interest in that. I don't really want to make it worse. I had a short stint a number of years ago, maybe 15 years ago, more than that, as a life coach. I just set myself up as a life coach. One morning I woke up and I, something was bothering me about it, about the way I was going about it. And I couldn't put my finger on it. So I stopped doing it. One morning, I just woke up and I realized what it was. And what it was, was that I was trying to fix people. And I just can't do that. But I realized that's what I was doing. I was trying to fix people, make their lives better. Or maybe even perfect. Talk about irritating. That was irritating to me. One of the problems, difficulties that shows up in relationship is where 
We don't speak our considerations to the other person. We have a consideration about something. We as human beings have the tendency to do that. That's what I mean as we. So there's that thing of not voicing considerations. And then what happens is we stop talking. Mm -hmm. And then once we stop talking, there's no affinity with each other anymore. And if there's no affinity with each other anymore, what's the point of having the relationship? It's just sort of like nowhere. There's another part what comes immediately in my mind when I'm talking and the other person is not listening. So I can have consideration and mention them. And the other person is so right in their perspective that they're not even listen to me. So that is stopping relationship, not speaking and not listening. They need a speaker and a receiver to make communication complete. And for me, it's very important and what I learn more and more to listen. Yes, and <laughs> I don't think that the fact that the other person might not be listening needs to change anything about the way I hold the relationship. So we might think about, all of us here in this room, might think about the, I don't know about the, the ideal relationship or the ideal of relationship, but the quality of relationship. And I'm a pretty firm believer that the quality of relationship does not depend on the circumstances or the content of the relationship. It depends on me. It depends on what I am creating, the declarations I make, the promises I make about the relationship are what define the quality of the relationship. For you. For me. Yeah. It's like an openness to being. It's an openness to being and allowing the person that you're in relationship with to be fully who they are. And you yourself can be fully embracing of that. So you're not trying to impose conditions or assignments on the relationship. You're allowing it to be in flow as it exists. And once again, this is just my reality, but this is what it registered to me. Thank you. There's often a language barrier. So a lot of what I'm talking about tonight, I'm referencing from the language of Warner Earhart, Est and Landmark and all that kind of stuff, because I am absolutely in love with his language. I think it is so clear and so descriptive. It's a powerful language. So the whole talk tonight is referenced around actually a particular talk of his that I've been listening to for the last three months. Over and over. I love it so much. It's kind of like the way when I first got into Charles Bukowski, I couldn't get enough of him. Reading his stuff was all I read for a year, practically. Just one Charles Bukowski book after another. I just wanted to like absorb it all in. That's how I tend to work. It's been that way with Trungpa, too. So the quality of our relationships. I think as human beings, particularly human beings of a Western culture, there's a tendency to relate to the content, the circumstances of relationships as the determining factor for the good or bad quality of them. And I'm suggesting that maybe it's not that. Maybe it's how we hold the content, how we hold the circumstances for ourselves. So you might be familiar with the language of accepting what is as it is. That's the same thing different language, but it's the same thing. So what would be a good element of that? A good element of that is disagreement. Particularly, I think it's mostly extreme, perhaps with couples, but it can be in friendship. Having disagreement, I think there's often an assumption when there's a disagreement that there's something wrong. 
that there's some problem in the relationship because we disagree. And I am not sure I believe that. I used to. <laughs> I used to believe that very strongly. But uh you mean a problem that needs to be fixed? Yes, a problem that needs to be fixed. That the disagreement can't just be there without affecting the overall quality of the relationship. You were saying it doesn't matter if the other person's listening. And that could be approached in a way of like the other person's actions don't impact you. Oh. And I think to be fully vulnerable, we have to acknowledge that we are impacted. It's just what we do with that impact. Yes. So if someone disagrees with us or isn't listening to us, to just think that we can transcend that and that doesn't matter isn't really the point. You said it better than I did, particularly when you throw in the word transcend, because, oh, man, that is such a buzzword and such a life deadening strategy to try to transcend circumstances of my life. Whew. Been there, done that. No, thank you. I'll pass. So thanks for throwing that word in there. I'm sure most of us have, I have for sure, found myself at some point or other saying about someone or other, I am really tired of their shit. I am just sick and tired. And I don't think that's the case at all. If we find ourselves saying that, that's not what we're sick and tired of. What we're actually sick and tired of is reacting the same way every time they do that thing. Because we're just a machine. And that's what we're sick and tired of. Not them, us, me. And I'm sure I can use not only the royal we, the universal we. That has showed up in everybody's life somewhere along the line. Maybe not to the same degree for everybody, but somewhere along the line. I'm pretty convinced of that. And that's to me, that's a really important thing to take a look at in terms of my part in a relationship. If I'm saying that all the time, I'm just so tired of their blah, 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 whatever, what a story that is, then I need to look at it differently. There's this optical illusion that's on paper, and it's a cube, three-dimensional picture of a cube. And usually one side of it is framed out with a little heavier, a little different color. And if you look at it, if you look at this cube, the one side of it will be in the foreground, and all of a sudden it shifts and it's in the background. Your brain shifts. It's really cool. But actually, I was thinking that because I used that as my logo when I was doing coaching. I had that on my business card, on my stationery, on my website, because I really like it because it just sums up this idea of it all depends on how you look at it and how I look at things makes a huge difference, you know? And that has to do with the whole black and white and gray thing that I started with. When everything's gray, there's lots of different ways to look at it. When it's black and white, there's only two ways to look at it, right or wrong, left or right, in or out. As you've been doing, just if questions come up, please throw them out there. Or uh, if you want to call bullshit on something, be my guest. Because I tend to find that more useful than agreement. Agreement for me tends to be just like blah, blah, blah. Agreement. Okay, we agree. So what? Let's move on. But if there's disagreement, then, then we got something to talk about. Then we can actually engage each other. Unless one of us happens to be committed to being right, then the conversation probably isn't going to go very far. So one of the things about this whole topic of relationship has to do with holding relationship as a question mark, open-ended. Because I've read a lot about relationships and the how-to books and the 10-step books, of the, 12, the 12 degrees of this, the 10 steps of that, and the five laws of this, all about relationship and how-to and what not to. And the best thing to say in this situation and what you shouldn't say in that situation. And my guess is that most of you have read 
at least some of those kinds of books. They're kind of black and white, kind of prescriptive in terms of coming up with remedies for dilemmas rather than just being with the dilemma. Say in relationship, it might be the dilemma of jealousy because jealousy is big. Whether it's a coupled relationship or even with friends, we can be jealous of our friends. I am sometimes, but it shows up and there's plenty of remedies about what to do about jealousy and jealousy rears its ugly head and jealousy is, it's not petty. It's got some claws to it. (laughs) It bites. But to me, there's a big difference between trying to fix it and just being with it. I say that as if, oh, yeah, just be with it. You know, just turn that being thing on and just be with it. I don't think it's that easy. In fact, I think if it is that easy, I might be kidding myself about it if it's actually that easy. Because I think that actually takes a lot of training to be with something, to be with life as it is, without trying to fix it or change it. That takes a lot of practice and effort and hard work and all that good stuff. Can we go back to the um, question that you were raising about being in a conversation with someone who was right? Because I find myself in those situations sometimes. And um, I would like to stop seeing it as a problem. Uh, I would like to have some workability with it. The reason I'm asking is that I have a friend that I have this idea about. So that's number one, is that I've already put that person in a container of something problematic or something that I have to deal with. I don't want to be doing that. I don't want to be doing that with anybody. At the same time, I don't feel that I'm safe enough to be vulnerable around someone who's that opinionated. Okay. I guess my greater question has to do with a willingness in myself or an ability that I would like to develop in myself of being vulnerable when I don't feel safe, which is another good reason to so, keep speaking up. Yeah. You have to try to practice with this language thing. You know, it's not black and white, is it? So to me, okay. you just answered your own question. Because what I heard you say is, I want to be vulnerable. Yes. Even when I feel it's not safe. Yes. And not kid myself about that. Yeah. Because when I'm vulnerable, I can be in a situation where that person doesn't have to be defined by me as a problem or as right. somebody I can't talk to or someone who has an opinion that I don't agree with. To get down to the nitty gritty of it, I ask myself, how am I able to be with someone that I care about and be honest with that person? When I don't agree with that person without having to even get into a disagreement. Yeah. They all have opinions. Activate my own mute button at a certain point, And at other times I need to speak up. When to speak up, when not to speak up. So kind of working out my own question. Yes, you are. I think it's great. <laughs> Two things I want to say. One is we have been put into a box, I think, as children. And we haven't let ourselves out of that box. So we're in a box. And I believe until I'm a part of the equation in my life, I'm going to be scared of people. So Mm. that's part of my life is putting myself back into my own equation. And that takes incredible courage in a sense because it's very scary. And the other thing is around the safety element. When I begin to do that, I become more reliable to myself. And so that safety issue of others becomes less important. Am I reliable to myself becomes more of the question. Yeah. I heard her making a declaration, saying what she wanted in this particular relationship with this particular person. And I thought you said it very clearly. And then you're probably going, well, what about the how-to? No, no, no. No? Oh, good. Okay, cool. The declaration is, is well, there's the practice. Yes. So instead of the how-to, it's like, okay, this is what I've got to practice with. Okay, then we'll leave the how-to out of it. Okay, relationship. Relationship. Somebody asked me, what's my definition of relationship? I'm like, I don't know. 
This is a definition I'll use that I stole from Warner. Because lots of things I'm stealing from Warner in this talk tonight. And I may say so, or I may not. And it'll just sound like I'm saying it. But I do that on purpose because I think that's the way to do it. And some people have a hard time with that. You know, they say, well, you should give credit to the origin of the quote or what you're speaking about. And I feel most of the time that not giving voice to where it's coming from is a way of starting to own it. I might read something or hear something and I resonate with it. I resonate with that. And rather than always referring back, oh, Werner said this, I just say it if as I said it. Well, you're giving credit now. I am giving credit. Sometimes I do and sometimes I don't. So I'm giving credit to him. He says, relationship is a clearing where love can show up. Not that it will, but that it can. And I personally don't interpret that as meaning only a coupled relationship. (laughs) Where the idea is that the love is supposed to show up there. (laughs) I take that to mean any relationship. That love can show up in any relationship. So in this thing I was listening to, he's actually talking about the trainings he's done with people. So this talk is from, I don't know, the early 80s, I think. Um, And he's talking about the trainings and the hundreds of people, maybe even thousands of people that they've done a training with. And he, he talks about the layers of sharing. Talks about it as sharing or the layers of confessing or the layers of seeing. And he says, the first thing that people share about, he says, are what we like people to see about us. The universe agrees with me. Okay. The bell rings. (laughs) The front, the facade, the way we show up, the way we unconsciously on purpose show up to other people, conditionally show up. Not conditionally as in partially, but as in having been conditioned to show up a particular way. Our life strategy. The next layer, he says, is what we hope people won't notice about us. That's the next layer of sharing that we share about. Kind of sneak that out there, what people don't notice about me, but I'll I'll say this thing. And he says, the next level is all the stuff we can't say, all the stuff we've never said our deepest, darkest secrets, the stuff that we think that's really touching the bottom of it all, who we really are. And then underneath that, the next layer, he says, we come to sharing the things with people that we've never said to them about what they mean to us and the gifts they've given to us and the power we see that they have in their lives and their contributions that they've made to my life. And then at the very bottom, underneath all of that, all the stuff you want to say and you don't want to say, so this is a real we. I'll take his word for it from the master. Every time, every person, the bottom line, the simplest expression is, I love you. Bottom line, that's it. After all that other stuff has shown itself, has been gone through, has been removed. And then he says, and maybe relationship is the clearing we create for love like that to show up in. So that's a really good working definition of relationship. If you really feel what that essential expression underneath all the coverings, what that essential expression of I love you is and to think about relationship all our relationships i mean we got to start somewhere <laughs> so maybe we start with the easy ones like with our dog no that was a bad joke that's true we create the space for love like that to show up in that's some powerful shit right there if you ask me yeah but how How do you do that? Forget how. You just start in. Whatever seems to be taking you in the right direction. Back to this thing about the content or the circumstances of our lives in regard to the quality of our lives. So if the quality of my life is not dictated 
by circumstances, by the content of my life, then what that means is that even if the content is really positive, really good, I feel good about the relationship. The other person feels good about the relationship. That's just more content. That's not an indicator of the quality of the relationship. The quality of the relationship is based on having created that space for love to show up intentionally. I don't mean accidentally, whimsically. So there's that, or there's waiting to find out if the other person loves you. (laughs) Or do you create love to show up? And even that principle is valid in the workplace too. Might not be about love, but it might be about workability. So creating the relationship with another person as a space of workability to show up in. Or am I just trying to figure out if the other person is going to do their job or not? Those are two really, really different approaches to life, to relationship, to being related to other people. Is the creation of that space, that possibility for something different to show up in. So another thing that I got from Warner is using the language of transformation. We all like that word and it's a good word, but the way he talks about it is transformation being very different than change or getting better or improving because all those things are connected to the past. They're all connected to what happened before and transformation is not. Transformation is something completely different. So there's this popular phrase in certain circles about what can be created with no filament to the past or what are we creating with no filament to the past? That's the path of transformation. No filament to the past. I mean, you're not going to do away with your history. You're not going to erase your history, but we don't have to live by our history. Not living by our history is the path of transformation. So in this thing I'm listening to, he talks about this exercise he did with people. I was actually going to do that exercise, but I'm deciding not to. But I'm going to talk about it anyway. So the exercise was to look at a relationship, any relationship in your life that might exemplify the principle of relatedness. It doesn't have to be an intimate relationship. It could really be anybody, but it exemplifies relatedness. And the question around that is, what would it take to be totally, completely satisfied in that relationship? What would have to change in that relationship for you to be totally and completely, fully, I mean, really dramatically satisfied? So you gave people space to think about it. There was some blank space on the CD. (laughs) So you come up with things and then it's like, okay, what else? And you come up with something. It's a process of looking. It's not a process of analyzing. It's just a process of looking. And what else? And what else? And after that, he said, some of you might have found that your list is endless, that you could just keep going. And that might be because your stand in life is I am not satisfied. And until the stand changes, no relationship is going to bring satisfaction because your stand in life already unconsciously is I'm not satisfied. So much of his communication, his work with people is getting people to take a stand about their life, a stand different than the one that they've taken unconsciously or by habit or by default, something that we're not even aware of. The other interesting thing he said about this is that being satisfied is not an internal state. I found that very interesting because I've definitely related to being satisfied as an internal state. In fact, most of my states are internal. (laughs) I keep them all to myself. Thank you very much. But what if one were finding that true for themselves, that that was their stand? 
I am not satisfied. I think life would operate differently for them if the stand in life was I am satisfied already. And then out of that stand, all those things, you know, that list that they were just making mentally about the things they needed to be satisfied. And then you can work on those things from a completely different place, from a place of actually already being satisfied. Who was it? Da Frijan, Bubba Frijan, Adi Da. They're all the same person. <laughs> anyway, Da Lavananda, he had this thing that really was interesting to me. He said, come to me already happy. This was quite a number of years ago, and I'm saying, but wait a minute. I mean, I wasn't a student of Doc Regions, but isn't that the reason you go to a guru so you can get happy? So make me happy. Come to the guru with all your problems so you can get them all fixed, and then you can be happy. And he's saying, come to me already happy, and then we can work. And it never really made any sense to me for years. It just never made any sense to me. But it's the same thing that Werner's saying here. Taking the stand of I am already satisfied, which is not one could hear that as positive thinking. Putting up little sticky notes all over the house. I am satisfied. I am happy. I am wonderful. I am terrific. And if you're 150 pounds overweight, I am thin. Or if you have no hair, you've gone bald. I have lovely hair. All this like positive thinking kind of stuff. But it's not that. It's very different because it actually makes things workable. So then he gets into talking about complaint. Ah, complaint. I used to think that I didn't complain. But then after a while, I realized that I just didn't complain externally. (laughs) That's a funny thing when you see that kind of thing. Rubai and I were talking at dinner tonight. And she said, are you nervous about your talk? And I said, yeah, I'm nervous. And she said, oh, you don't look like it. I always think when you give these talks that you're not nervous. I said, I'm not talking about talks. I said, I'm talking about life. I said, I'm always nervous all the time. And I looked at her, I said, I fooled you, didn't I? She said, yeah. I said, yeah, I used to fool myself too. Because I believe my own appearances. (laughs) Looking at myself only on the surface how I showed up and showed up as not being nervous for the most part. I mean, I don't think it showed up that way to everybody, but for the most part, it's very easy to fool yourself like that. So complaint, he won't, she doesn't, they always, those kinds of things. Usually the, the stuff of what would make us satisfied in a relationship, that stuff lives as a complaint in us. He won't, she doesn't. It can be a they too. It can be about a group of people as well. There's yeah, re- I'm, I'm never. <clears throat> yeah, I'm always. It, it can. It doesn't usually work that way. It's always they, they. But even that, even the complaint about oneself, I always, I never, I can't, you know, can't. my failings. Oh my God, spare me. Sometimes. To get into conversations with people, and it's just a litany of their failings. Drives me crazy. Talk about things that annoy them. Living the Jesus out of me. Wow. Anyway, here's a really interesting thing. He's talking about having power or aliveness in your relationships. And he says, I promise you power in your relationship if you promise to produce what's missing. So that list of what would make you satisfied, that's your list of what's missing. Then he goes on, he says, notice, I did not promise that you will produce what's missing, if you promise to do so, only that you will have power, aliveness in the relationship when you do. So this really got me to thinking about the power of promise, which is really commitment, the power of committing to something. The power of making declarations for our lives. So he's saying, you will have power in your relationship if you promise to produce. So he's saying, if I promise to produce what's missing in my relationship, there will be power, there will be aliveness. 
He's not even saying that just because I say that I promise that I'll actually do it. So it's not actually the results of it that produce the power. It's the declaration itself that produces the power. That's a very interesting thing to consider, I think, because it's a thing that isn't depending on results down the line. It's immediate. I mean, I think anybody who's taken a stand or made a promise about anything, the results are immediate. The shift can be that big. It's all it takes. It's all that's needed to move something in a different direction. It doesn't take a nuclear bomb, that kind of new direction. Just a little bit. So complaints, promising to produce what's missing. And we have to train ourselves. We have to train ourselves to communicate our considerations in a way that doesn't bring about defensiveness. That's some training right there. To actually say things as a consideration before it actually becomes a complaint, before it becomes a real problem. For me, that's like my history book right there. Let it go until it becomes a big enough problem that I have to say something. But why not address a consideration right from the beginning in a language? And language, I don't mean like French or Spanish. I mean, basically tone of voice that the other person will actually hear. Just an observation, really, by doing that, you bypass this issue of do you want to be right or do you want to be in relationship? If you communicate your opinion, but with tone of voice that can be heard and that's not righteous, then you can be right and still be in relationship. Yeah. Thank you. The tone of voice is a representation of something. Mm-hmm. I think every conversation could be an invitation for conversation. Yeah. We're committed to being right. I think that's a commitment to stop conversation. Yeah, it's a commitment to being right. (laughs) Doesn't go very far. Yeah. I think that what you're talking about lends ourselves to be kind of lighthearted about our ego, so to speak. So if I have an opinion and I don't take it that seriously, but I'm curious... And I stay curious about others because to me, we can always hear more, hear something else that's different than wanting to complete the conversation and put it to bed. Stop it. I was talking to somebody the other day. He was expressing this sentiment about how he didn't understand how people could think this way, a particular way, or do a particular thing. And he says, I just don't understand it. And I said, do you even want to? And he was like, no, not really. So he'd rather be right. That's being right. Losing that curiosity about why other people do things. I also think there's another approach to that, which is like, the deeper that we know ourselves, the more we understand why people do the bizarre things people do. The total, absolutely inane, bizarre perhaps even criminal things they do because we know that's here too. I got that too. It's just like, lucky me, it's not on the surface. So I'm actually not going to be doing that, but I know why they do it because I got that here too. So I want to touch a little bit on trust in relationship. Again, from this thing I've been listening to about Werner, he's talking about trust. So we have a consideration, say, and the consideration is feeling a lack of trust with the other person. And the tendency might be not to say anything because we don't have proof yet. We haven't accumulated enough proof of their distrust. You know, things haven't gotten bad enough yet where we haven't accumulated that proof. So the whole thing about creating trust, how do we create trust in a relationship? Again, it's very much like creating that space 
if I am going to create trust in my relationship with you, I extend trust to you. I create the space for trust to show up in our relationship. Why are you trustworthy? Because I say so. That's it. That's all it takes. But that's not how we usually approach it. Most of us, I think. Are they trustworthy? We got this checklist. Okay, they got three out of five, but they didn't get the last two. So I can't really consider them trustworthy. Oh, oh, they also did this thing. (laughs) So now I know they're not trustworthy. And that's a very black and white approach. But the idea of creating space for trust to show up in is very different. It's not black and white. It's just there. And just because the space is created doesn't mean it will actually show up. But I've created that opening for it to show up rather than waiting for my checklist to be complete. It reminds me of being satisfied. You come full. Yes, exactly. So it's very different than setting up the parameters so that someone has to prove their trustworthiness to you. And often the reason we take that approach is because the communication, the affinity isn't there to begin with to allow the trust to come. If the affinity is not there and they make a mistake about something, clearly they can't be trusted. But when there's affinity, things can be seen as just a mistake on the other person's part or even on our own part. We make a mistake about something in relationship to someone. Like I could even use the example of the very beginning when I made that joke. Oh, I made a mistake. You know, it's not a mistake. I'm not trustworthy. I can't be trusted. She might be telling that to herself. I can tell that to myself because of something I did when actually it was just a mistake. Communication creates affinity. But it's one thing to be talking with our friends about our health, our age, our limitations, our appearances, you know, and it's another thing, or the weather or sports, whatever. It's another thing to be talking about what are we creating? Talking to the other person about what gifts they provide in my life. Talking to the other person about things that matter in my life. Those kinds of conversations. The conversations that indicate where I and the other person actually live. And the affinity comes through the sharing of that, of where we actually live. 